Now introducing Mr. Kawada himself, my dad. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you're listening, however you're listening, this is Quantum of History. I am your host, Donnie Waldron. Welcome into episode 36. This one's got a little bit of Thunderball, a little bit of For Your Eyes Only, and just a little bit of The Spy Who Loved Me. This is about the time when the United States had two nuclear warheads blow up over Spain, had one fall out to sea, and have one recovered while the Russians and everybody else is looking for it, and while Francisco Franco and the CIA are trying to cover up that it even happened. It is a fascinating story. And today's interview with Alex Lamas, you guys will find so fascinating. The guy is so well-spoken, and he has so much interesting stuff to talk about. The episode, the interview lasts a long time, but I'm telling you, it's worth every minute, and you guys will absolutely love the story that he has. His uncle is actually the one that breaks the story, the one that uncovers the plot. And uh, it's just a fascinating story, and there's so much more to go to it, so you guys will absolutely love this. I want to thank everybody that reached out, gave me kind words about the last episode. Again, it's not easy to do those those kinds of episodes, and uh, the feedback was great, and it really helps out. So I really appreciate it. Uh, Thanks again, everybody that reached out. And again, the Bond Girl Bracket Challenge is almost at the end. If you're not following on YouTube, we're almost at the end. We're almost there, guys. So it's going to be exciting. Check out the YouTube. And I've been posting them on Instagram too. So uh, follow it. It's almost, we've almost crowned a champion. You guys, you guys are killing me with this Tracy stuff, but uh, it's been a lot of fun to do. So let's get right into the episode here. Thunderball episode 36, the time when the U.S. lost four nuclear warheads. James Bond is always five minutes in the future or five minutes in the past. He's always relevant though, and in so many instances the plotline of a Bond film finds its way into occurring into a real life right after. The movie Thunderball is no different. In Thunderball, two nuclear bombs are stolen at sea and ransomed against foreign countries. Thunderball found its way to the big screen in 1965 and quickly became the most profitable Bond movie until 2012 Skyfall was released. Audiences were captivated, and the grandeur and the scale of the movie were unmatched. And the Cold War was at its height, and the fear of nuclear warheads was part of American life. The world was on edge, and everyone was afraid nuclear warheads would land in the wrong hands. Nearly a year later, in 1966, everyone's worst nightmare came true. A mid-air collision between a B-52 bomber and a fueling plane happened over Palomares, Spain. Oh, and the B-52 bomber just happened to be carrying uh, four nuclear warheads that were 100 times more powerful than those that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. What came after was a series of cover-ups, governmental neglect, media lying, and very tense efforts to try and relocate nuclear warheads at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. To understand how this happened, we have to go back to the end of World War II. World War II started and ended in very different ways. World War I was fought through trench warfare and in slow-moving assault on your opponent. It was heavily reliant on humans to do the majority of the fighting. At the start of World War II, many thought it would be the same thing this time around. Germany changed all that. They amassed massive amounts of tanks, planes, jeeps, cars, and an enormous amount of fast-moving vehicles that enabled them to run over their opposition. 
This was still a ground-based war to start, as Germany took over the country by country on their march towards London, and as the war continued, more and more air fire was utilized. The air raid sirens would deafen citizens as the aerial onslaughts came. The bombs would rain down upon cities, turning them quickly to rubble. As the war progressed, the bombs were getting better, the planes were getting more efficient, and it was becoming clear that the air was going to decide the war. The B-29s of the time were becoming instrumental for the U.S. in the Pacific side of the war. Tons of ordnance were being dropped on Japan, and it was only a matter of time before Japan would be forced to surrender with their industry and cities decimated. Japan had underestimated the United States' ability to wage war across two oceans. The schematics, infrastructure, and planning it took to bring an army, supplies, and planes to Japan was something the Japanese did not think the Americans capable of accomplishing. This proved to be a severe underestimation, and by 1945 the Americans were well on their way to victory. But Japan refused to surrender. Japan vowed to fight until the very end. The rest of the Axis powers had surrendered already, and the United States and the rest of the Allied forces wanted the war over with. The world was fatigued from fighting, and the end had to come. President Truman gave the orders to send the Fat Man and the Little Boy, code names for the atomic bombs, to be dropped over in Japan. On August 6, 1945, the United States dropped Little Boy over Hiroshima. The bomb destroyed nearly five square miles of the city, killing 80,000 people instantly and countless more from radiation exposure. The Japanese still refused to surrender, so three days later, Fat Man was dropped over Nagasaki, killing an estimated 40,000 people instantly. Japanese Emperor Hirohito surrendered to the United States on August 15, 1945, thus ending World War II officially. Out of the evil of war, a new threat to humanity had been birthed. The invention of nuclear bombs now changed the world. No longer did it take tons of ordnance delivered in many places, but rather one bomb could end an entire city. With this, the world changed, and the fight for the air was now crucial. This was exacerbated by the growing tensions of the Cold War. After the Potsdam Conference, the world was divided up by the victor powers. Germany was split apart, and it would be the glaring example of the USSR versus the West. The USSR and the United States were at war on all aspects, industry, space, and now nuclear bombs. The Soviets were nuclear not long after the bombs were dropped. With the United States and the Soviets being a standoff of opposing paradigms, the two needed to keep the others at bay. By 1966, the Cold War was at its height. The nuclear war seemed one step away. In several instances, one shot or one wrong move could have ran the world into World War III. One way that the United States stayed at the ready against the Soviet Union was to have planes that could fly from the United States all the way to the Soviet Union to drop bombs and then safely return home. They accomplished this by creating mid-air refueling for their bombers. Prior to this, the only way the United States would have been able to attack the USSR would be to hold bombs and bases in foreign countries. Keeping nuclear warheads in a foreign land was too dangerous, and the logistics of transporting nuclear warheads was too dangerous as well. This changed when Boeing came up with the flying boom. The way the boom works is that a 33-foot, 8-inch long aluminum tube that is 2 feet in diameter is connected from one plane to the other. The plane with the fuel stays on course at a constant speed and altitude as the receiving plane inches forward to it. The boom is extended out and the boom operator waits until it is above the roof of the receiving plane before a lizard-type lung-type thing extension is activated. It looks like a, a, a frog catching a, uh, a fly is activated to, for the boom to receive the plane. From there, fuel is sent from one plane to the other. This all takes exact precision and timing. As one plane is losing fuel and gaining and another gaining fuel, the altitude and flight can become drastically different. 
and this time there is a slow balancing act that takes place as one wrong move can mean the end for both planes. And in a worst case scenario, this exact thing happened in 1966 over Palomares, Spain. On January 16, 1966, a B-52 Stratofortress took off from Seymour Johnson Air Force Base in North Carolina on its way to Europe to do its circle and back. This was part of Operation Chrome Dome. <laughs> yeah, I know the name. I know the name and look, uh, there was a time in Montreal I once had an Operation Chrome Dome myself. Hey-o! But anyways. <laughs> anyways. So, uh, <laughs> an operation, what Operation Chrome Dome was, was an operation that had 24-hour coverage and rapid response capabilities in the case of sudden war. The crew had done this trip before, and it was long, and it was a boring trip for the crew for the most part. The crew consisted of pilot, co-pilot, boom operator, and a man that would have, that would actually arm the nuclear bombs. The four bombs on board were not armed at the time. There's a process of arming a nuclear bomb where another smaller explosion or a catalyst has to be set off in order to create the chain reaction needed to get the bigger mushroom type explosion that you get from nuclear bombs. This arming is done mid-flight as to prevent the bombs from going off at the wrong time. But the bombs are still filled with plutonium and still highly radioactive material. The bomber chose the area above Palomares, Spain to refuel because the weather is consistent and rarely deals with rain or storms. It also has no cities in the area. And what should have been a routine mid-air fueling turned into disaster. The exact cause is still unknown. Whether it was a collision or it was something else, the fuel caught on fire and an explosion occurred. The members of the fueling plane were quickly incinerated. Three members of the B-52, including the pilot, were able to eject from the plane and saved by fishing boats as they fought off hypothermia. The B-52 with four nuclear warheads continued its fiery descent towards Palomares. A huge bomber clashed into the tomato field, spraying fire and debris all throughout the countryside. The smoke engulfed the sky and flames raged as the remaining bits of the plane were burned. Almost immediately, at a nearby base, every soldier available was rounded up in order to look for the four lost bombs. One bomb was found quickly and it was found intact near the site. Two of the other bombs had exploded. The explosion was not nuclear reaction, but rather explosive inside bomb meant that part of the reaction had detonated. The detonation shot radioactive material all throughout the countryside. Without these two bombs being armed, they didn't have the actual nuclear reaction that you have. But within the bomber still housed a lot of plutonium and lots of radioactive material. And when that gets strewn across the countryside, that countryside is now highly radioactive. The fourth bomb remained missing. The Air Force spoke to the fishermen who recounted seeing a parachute with a dead man with his guts hanging out, landing in the water. What that fisherman actually saw turned out to be the fourth bomb that had its parachute deployed because each bomb has a parachute also on, on board. So it looked like a man being dragged with his innards, but it was actually a bomb floating to the bottom of the sea with the parachute attached. Engineers narrowed the search for the bomb to a 27 mile radius and brought in Alvin, a 22 foot long, eight foot wide submersive that could dive 6,000 feet below water to search for the bomb. This is where the four your eyes only comes in. It very much feels like what they had in uh, four your eyes only. Alvin could hold a pilot and two observers. It had several cameras and a grappling arm. On March 24th, the fourth bomb was located by Alvin and the crew. A cable was attached to the parachute, but as the bomb was being lifted to the surface, the rope broke, causing the bomb to fall back to the seafloor. After searching again for another week to relocate the bomb, it was found. This time, using an unmanned craft to try and bring it up. That craft was tangled in the parachute cord and it couldn't bring it up. This time the craft, the bomb, and the parachute were all brought up all at once. 
After a labor-intensive effort, the bomb was brought to the surface, ending the 81-day ordeal. While the search was going on, the cover-up was in full swing. Paulo Maris is in a heavy tourist area of Spain and is near the coastline. At the time, Spain was ran by General Francisco Franco. Franco was adamant that the words nuclear never be mentioned. Franco feared tourism in the area would cease at the mere mention of anything nuclear going on. And this was great for the U.S. They were in agreement. They didn't want it to be known that their uh, warheads were lost too. They wanted to keep it as quiet as possible. When speaking to the media, the B-52 was referred to as long-distance jet and the bombs as elements of a secret military nature. And the soldiers that were initially sent into the highly radioactive areas with no protective equipment and they were told there was nothing to worry about. Many of those soldiers today have all underlying health problems and different forms of cancer. And the area today remains highly radioactive. Now this story would not have been broken or this story would not have been told without our guest, his uncle is actually the one that broke this story. And he, it, again, you just I'm gonna let Alex tell it because he tells it way better. But it's a very interesting story about how this story, because again, initially the United States and Spain both did not want it let out that two nuclear warheads exploded over Spain. They just wanted to keep it quiet. They didn't want anyone to know it was nuclear. In fact, they were insistent it wasn't nuclear, again, using different terminology for it rather than saying what they were. That was until the story broke, and it was broken by our guest, Alex Lamas' uncle. So let's go ahead. I'm going to stop talking, and I'm going to let Alex take over. Let's welcome in our guest, my guest today, Alex Lamas. Welcome in my good friend, Alex Lamas. He's coming in. Uh, I met him, actually. I, I stalked uh, Zeritsky's comments, and I found that you were into Kung Fu. And then I found because I was just doing a Kung Fu episode. I'm like, what? And I saw your Instagram, and I saw you were TikTok Kung Fu. I'm like, yes, finally, because I was searching so hard for somebody who like taught Kung Fu and stuff. So I, I reached out, and I hit, I hit him in the DMs. Not going to lie. Slid in them DMs. And uh, then we got to talking, and now we I, he gave me a topic for this, and it's such an interesting topic, and I can't thank you enough. It was so much fun to research, and uh, such an interesting guy. And uh, just go ahead and introduce yourself, Alex. All right. Well, first of all, let me just say I am so excited to be on your show. Um, I've listened to quite a few of the podcasts, and I will say you are my favorite. And you're- <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. First of all, you've listened to a couple and still agreed to come on here. I'm very flattered. I'm very excited. No, I mean, this is like, the, you're like the, the Joe Rogan of the Bond community. So this is amazing. <laughs> Just the tattoos. That's all it is. Yeah, yeah. So, no, really. I mean, because of the subject matter, because you have very intelligent conversations, because also I was um, an anthropology major in college, so I'm, I'm also very much into history. When I was in college, I one of the things I used to love to do is I, I used to love also the Indiana Jones films. And I actually wrote a paper 
on the thuggy cult in India because of the Indiana Jones movies. So it's kind of like you're doing what I used to do and used to love to do anyway. So this is this is like your your podcast goes right to my heart. So, wow. so wow. I am so excited to be here. And I'm really honored that you asked me. And I have to also just say that, yes, you reached out on me and me being so lame with um, Instagram, I did not see <laughs> the instant message until <laughs> like four months later, like a few weeks ago. <laughs> look, you're not, you're not ago. the, look, you're not the first DM I've hit that I didn't get a response back from. So <laughs> no, 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 no. That was my fault because I do not know how to use Instagram. I'm just starting to learn how to use it. And, uh, yeah, I completely, I missed it and it was my fault. And I, and, and I instantly replied to you apologizing because I don't want you to think, Oh, who's this schmuck? He just totally blew me off. Um, and that's how we started going back and forth. And I had no intention of actually, you know, trying to glom onto your show. I just thought that this subject matter that we're going to talk about would be a great, uh, subject for your show. Cause it's right to the heart of the matter. It's a James Bond plot. Mm -hmm. It happened for real kinda. And it was involving a member of my family. Yeah, I, when and, I heard your story and the story of your family, and when you reached out, I was like, I gotta have him on. He was so good. And then the minute I got to talking to you, I could tell like I just gotta ask a question, and you just you just are natural at this. So this is I'm really excited. We'll so see. Go ahead and talk about um, again. So introduce you. So you said you started as an anthropology manager, and just kind of go through a little bit more about Alex, and then we'll get into the topic itself. All right, really short. Um, actually, I started out as a filmmaker, and I've been in the film uh, business for about 25 years as a storyboard artist and um, assistant art director in the film union. In the union, um, the anthropology thing was literally like a, a weird detour that I took because my mom was doing archaeology, and I was like, "Oh, that's cool. I want to study that." But I soon learned that there was no hope of a career in that. So as soon as I graduated, right back into movies. Um, and that's where I had been for the 25 years. However, just try to make this story a little shorter. Uh, if you had ever been on a film set, it's like six, especially indie films, which was the majority of my career. It's 16 hour days, six days a week, six months at a shot. And you, if you have two or three back to back, you're just going like a steam train. I've had like three day, three times in my life where I worked 72 hours straight, no stopping, which is just ridiculous. Mm. And it took a toll on my health. Yeah. Um, and it really took a toll on my health and well-being. At the same time, I had been studying Kung Fu. I always wanted to study Kung Fu. I had taken karate, Taekwondo, Judo, fencing. I was in the fence uh, on the, uh, college fencing team on the saber team uh so i was always into more like action sport kind of thing like that and uh fighting sports and as i was getting deeper deeper into the kung fu i realized that it was keeping my health up and eventually after um a certain time i realized i can't do the movies i can't do it at that same level because i was getting older i was getting into my 40s and I started getting jobs teaching Kung Fu and Tai Chi. And I'm like, well, I'm actually kind of making money over here. So I'm, 
let me put the movies aside. And I started teaching Kung Fu and Tai Chi full time. And that's pretty much what I do now. All right. That has nothing to do with what we're talking about. <laughs> no, but it's just fascinating. It really is fascinating. So it's funny how so many people have a lot of the, the Bond community is so enriched with people who just have amazing stories. And uh, I think it's just, I just think it's the coolest community to be a part of. And it's for things like you, you've been in the film industry for 20 years, then you switched to Kung Fu. Uh, you're well around. You were on the fencing team in college. Like, I've never even seen, I've never actually seen anybody who actually fences. And here you are on the yeah. fencing team. So I just always love meeting, yeah. even if it's not pertaining to the thing itself, it's always interesting just meeting people and hearing their story and all that the Bond community has to offer. I mean, you've even been yeah. to, you've been to Goldeneye. You, you have sat, you have sat in, in, in El Padron's, in El Padron's desk. I am not worthy. <laughs> I am not worthy. <laughs> yeah, no, that was, that was um, pretty, pretty mind blowing sitting in Ian Fleming's chair, sitting at his desk, looking out the window that he looked, swimming in the, in the area where he swam, snorkeling where he snorkeled. It was just, yeah, that was just insane. That yeah. was a, I mean, and what's so funny is when I was swimming, I had read uh, Live and Let Die and um, what was the other one that takes place in Jamaica? Oh my God. Uh, Dr. No. Mm -hmm. And, but in live and let die, he describes a lot of the undersea, uh, area of Jamaica. And I'm like, I'm, I read this, I'm watching, <laughs> I'm in it yeah. and I read it and it's Surreal. Like, Oh my God. It was, it was mind blowing. So yeah. Huge envy. Yeah. Huge, huge envy over here. One day. Anybody can do it. It's <laughs> not that expensive. If you get a little bungalow, it's, and the people are just lovely. The people at Goldeneye are lovely. The Jamaicans were just so warm hearted and, and beautiful. And yeah, it's just, it literally is just pick up the phone and, and make the reservations. It's not that hard. So. <laughs> well, I'll definitely have to try it next. So yeah, let's so, get into why we're here today. So when you initially told me, you told me about this story and you're like, hey, if you, if you ever want to check this out, um, check out this real life Thunderball story. And I just loved researching. It. I love this topic. It was such an interesting thing to read about. And I'm starting to delve into, not for this episode, but another episode. I think I'm going to do one on Francisco Franco. Uh, he's a, he's an interesting oh. guy too. So I think we have to bring you back on for this one. But tell me how you got in, how you found this topic, how it pertains to your family, and how you got it, how you why you sent it to me. Okay, so I have this very okay. It's not me; it's my family, especially on my mother's side. Um, this crazy family that has done these amazing things, and one of them, my grandfather's brother. My grandfather's name is George Stathos. My his brother was named Harry Stathos. At the time, he was the UPI head of in Madrid, you know, United Press International. He was a very uh, successful um, journalist for his whole life. He had done, he had been all over the world. He was in stationed in places like Germany, Italy, and Spain. He and it, later in his career, when I really knew him, he was a staff writer for the New York Times. No, for the Daily News. I'm sorry, for the Daily News. Um, I remember as a kid going into the Daily News, I'm like, this is the Superman building. This is the Daily Planet. <laughs> oh, my God, I'm in the Daily Planet. I didn't even know it at the time. But, yeah. That's great. And, um, yeah, and he was uh, also a jazz writer. He knew all the famous uh, jazz musicians around the world. He brought 
Miles Davis to our house. Oh, time. What? What? Yeah, and I actually kind of remember it. I mean, I have a vague memory of it, but I remember this this guy. I'm like, wow, this guy's kind of scary looking because it was in the <laughs> 70s. Yeah. And so he brought Miles Davis to our house. He was very good friends with people like um, like Miles Davis. He was very good friends. Um, ben Vereen, Blossom Deary, uh, you name it. Just, you know, all the big jazz people in New York. He was he was a great jazz pianist himself. Um, and kind of a, a, a kind of a minor celebrity in New York, in that New York culture. Uh, I imagine the, I imagine New York in the seventies. The New York in the seventies jazz club seems very swanky. Like it was like the cool, or all the cool came, where all the cool kids I were. Was, I was nine, so yeah. I don't know. They didn't love you. Let you in the back. <laughs> No, but my he did get my parents into Studio Fifty Four. Ooh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when it was at its you know height. Yeah. But anyway, so this guy is you know kind of a larger than life character. So was his brother, my grandfather, and and one of the sort of uh, great tall tales of the family dinners and Thanksgiving dinners was him telling how he broke this story about nuclear bombs being lost in Palomares, Spain. And, you know, he was, he was one of the, he was the guy who broke the story that it was nuclear weapons. So, you know, the story was, um, it was part of a thing called Operation Chrome Dome. What I didn't realize, and I've been doing a little research on myself, that at the time, in the 1950s, we, the United States, did not have a very large missile program. Mm -hmm. Our nuclear weapons defense system was almost primarily with bombers. Yep. So we really didn't have a lot of missiles or any, where, when, while the Russians were way ahead of us in rocketry. They yeah. stole their Germans and got their Germans to make all these rockets. And so they were, they were already making ICBMs when we were still flying around in, in propeller airplanes. Yeah, I mean, they, you know? I, when, so, I, when I did my uh, episode on the space race, that was one of the things that I came across was that the Soviets, no one, they didn't even know the Soviets had the missiles until they all of a sudden were in space. And they're like, holy crap. It wasn't just that they were in space. They were the fact that they have the propulsion, te propeller, propulsion technology far than what we had. And that's really yeah. what that's what sped up everything. Was space race was more just missile race, but let's do this too. Yeah, Sorry to interrupt. How far? No, no, it's, that's cool. Yeah, and how far behind we were in so many ways, and especially in, in espionage. I've been during lockdown. I sort of got into this uh, hobby of learning about the Cold War as well, watching a lot of Cold War TV shows and movies and documentaries and whatnot. And you know, they had had a spy network going back till the Bolshevik revolution. Yep, Vladimir and Lenin. And we, yep. yeah, and we were just getting ours going. Now, speaking of, uh, of, of early spies, my, his brother, my grandfather, George Stathos, was in the OSS during World War II. So he was a spy, Yeah, my grandfather. That's awesome. And he was a spy in Portugal. And what he would do is he would go... He was a pilot, he was a Navy pilot, and he would fly a rum and goose down into Portugal and then go into Estoril in the casino with <laughs> met Ian Fleming hanging out there right? spies. And I mean, his, 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 his tales of, of his spying days during World War II weren't that spectacular. What, we, what he was doing was 
making fake business deals with German industrialists and trying to figure out what they were doing. Um, after the war, he went back to Germany, found some of these guys he made the fake deals with who weren't arrested as Nazis <laughs> and made real <laughs> deals with them. And he was one of the first people to import Volkswagen Beetles into the United States. That's correct. Because Volkswagen well, at the time was fascist and that's how so many of them got in there. Yeah. Well, we're going into the 1950s now. Yeah. So in the 1950s later, he, he, you know, after the OSS, he, uh, used those contacts to like, well, maybe I can make some money. And maybe <laughs> the ones that weren't Nazi, you know. <laughs> it's, it's funny how that at post-World War, it was those people who had privilege during the war that really capitalized. One, they're just obviously driven people, but they also were able to use their contacts. And after the World War II, how the world fell, that's a lot about how the wealth got distributed too. So It's so fascinating. Yeah. I love that time. From the Potsdam Conference it's on to... It's 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 so interesting and just researching this thing and how everything was falling into these two camps mm. that were so solid on both sides and even in Spain. So I talked to my parents about what was going on in Spain at the time because um, they uh, my father came from Cuba. So he was born in Havana, Cuba, and he left in 62, you know, escaping Castro Castro's regime. Um, to come here, and that's another whole story. I can get it. There's, there's, there's another road we can. <laughs> this, go down I'm, to I'm, every every word you're saying, I want to <laughs> ask you 55 follow-up questions on, but we'll keep <laughs> keep on your your path here. Yeah, yeah. No, that's another whole story about. And then he, his uncle was Castro's pilot, and he got caught. <laughs> and there's a no whole other CIA thing, and so yeah, there's another interesting story there. But he, so when they, he came here, he, as a young man, he wanted to be a singer and he's a very good singer. And my, my, uh, my grandmother, my mother's mother was a dancer and she was a very famous dancer. She was in some, she was like a chorus girl in some like Marx Brothers movies. She was, uh, did a lot of little sort of background chorus girl things in movies, but she was on Broadway. She was on in nightclubs. She had, you know, met my grandfather. Um, and here's another story. She was, um, now we don't, she, her, her, she was born in Pancho Villa's army. Really? Yeah. And we would have to do DNA test if she was the illegitimate daughter of Pancho Villa, but Pancho Villa's actual daughter would come to our house and she would constantly call my grandmother little sister oh my god my what a tangled web your family weaves and she was also a model for diego rivera in one of his paintings in in the national in in mexico city but that's another story <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna end up with seven podcasts here uh, I know. It's, it's it's I told you my this family history I have I, it has nothing to do with me, but it's just I'm just related to this these larger than life characters. That's so amazing. And so so what happened was is that my grandfather div divorced my grandmother, remarried another woman. The woman was so wonderful that we actually everybody loved the new wife more than they liked him. <laughs> <laughs> and so he moved to Spain, but to Barcelona and my parents. So my dad, uh, the way my dad met my mother is that my dad and my grandmother were in the same nightclub performing together in New York city. And she goes, Oh, you got to come home and meet my daughter. She's beautiful. You would love her. And he did. And he did. 
and they, you know, eventually they ended up getting married. And so what they decided to do was to kind of honeymoon in Barcelona. And what he realized was that um, he could, uh, he started making a lot of business contacts. So the honeymoon turned into we're, we're staying, yeah. we're living here. So it's not just a honeymoon, we're staying. And they were living with my grandfather in his apartment um, where I was eventually, where I eventually was born. And I actually revisited a couple of years ago, which was really weird. But um, it's still there. The apartment's still there. The building's still there. It's really interesting to go to the place where you're born. Yeah. Um, so, so they're living in Spain in, in, in 1965. And then... They were um, all of a sudden they get a phone call from my uncle saying, um, I got to come over. I can't tell you what it is right now, but something really huge just happened. And they're like, wow, what's going on? What's going on? And so they had to wait like a day or two because he was coming in from he was in Madrid at the time. So uh, and interestingly, um, the. Uh, my uncle had these two Spanish and they were, there were these two reporters uh, that kind of were like his kind of flunkies slash, uh, you know, protégés that he was kind of training and they were following him around. And my mom remembers these guys. There were two very young looking, good looking guys. And they were, they were Spanish, but they also grew up in the United States and California. And they found my, my uncle and they were learning from him, you know, the craft of journalism so he said he didn't want to kind of go down to palomares because he was because there was the idea that there may have been nuclear bombs aboard but nobody knew that nobody was saying anything yeah now interestingly when this happened my parents living in barcelona had no idea anything happened because he said that franco's regime did a huge blackout hmm. of all newspapers like they they didn't want any reporting on this whatsoever so they had no idea that anything happened it was great for both parties i mean the u.s didn't want it out franco didn't want to stop tourism in the area right so right it was yeah and i was yeah i was asking symbiotic. My, my yeah my father how was barcelona in the 1960s and he said well you know on a day-to-day basis it was a lot of fun it was it's like it is now it's, it's a beautiful city it was a lot of fun he says but you know, I would ride the bus a lot and I would see not police, but these like secret police would come on the bus, drag somebody off and beat them in the middle of the street. And you didn't know why, but all of a sudden these secret police would come on, drag somebody off. And, be, and he said he's seen this happen three or four times while he was in Barcelona, That's where, crazy. you know, Franco's goons, so to speak. And because he came, he came from essentially what it was it? He knew what fascism yeah, was. Yeah, he, he knew what he was seeing. Batista. You know, yeah, he came from. You know, he when when he was living in Cuba, he would say that neighbors of his would just disappear, never to be heard from again. It's amazing under Batista. Yeah, it's amazing yeah. to me that um, Franco isn't more more known. He's kind of obscure. Like when you hear the lores of history, Franco isn't up there with you know one of the worst dictators, even though he killed two hundred thousand people the biggest mass graves in the entire world are in Spain. Oh, I didn't even know that. Yeah. Really? Mm-hmm. The biggest wow. the biggest mass graves in the world are in Spain. And, uh, really? Mm-hmm. From Francisco's regime. So he would wow. pile them, he would just, it's like 200,000 deaths at least are attributed to him. 
And he just pile them in, and they're just these giant mass graves that nobody even knew about, and they're the biggest ones in the world. So we're it, in Spain, you, I, you know, I'd have, I'd have to double check. Oh, I just started getting into okay. the research for Franco, but um, it's amazing. And, and, and it, I hear now he, there's even where he's buried, there's a mausoleum. Mm. And um, Spain, I didn't realize how prevalent fascism in, in that was in Spain, but apparently there's a whole actual pretty prominent fascist party in Spain. And they mm-hmm. celebrate, and they want so their one side wants to take down the mausoleum and all the remembrance of Franco, and this other one mm-hmm. has cheers for him and and cheers fascism and all this other stuff, even though he mm-hmm. was such a he killed two hundred thousand Spaniards in the Spanish Civil War. It, it's just wow. amazing to me. I, I, this stuff, and I don't even know. I never would have thought before doing this research. I would have never thought Spain was like that. So it's interesting for you to say that you know your dad actually saw people getting dragged off a bus and beaten. Oh yeah. Yeah, and, and it terrified him. He was like, "Do I really want to live here? I don't know." But he just, but he said also on the day to day, you wouldn't. It was normal. I know? mean, the just, girls are pretty. All so. of <laughs> yeah, pretty girls will make you look the other way on some things, huh? Yeah, yeah. And he's like, you know, mostly it's normal. And then all of a sudden, oh, what happened? Oh, where'd that guy go? <laughs> Raúl, Raúl. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and it was interesting because there was a lot of tourism going on in Spain at that time. It was Spain was really ramping up its tourist industry. Um, even in that area in Palomares had resorts. Mm-hmm. Um, and you had this weird thing going on because one of the things that I saw at that time in the 1950s and 60s was the only people who really recognized Franco's regime were other dictators from South America and Central America. And the United States, mm-hmm. that he really wanted to get, try like because the, you, re, you remember at that time Europe came out of a fascist heart nightmare. Yep. So they're looking. So Franco was Hitler's buddy for a little while. Yeah. But on the other hand, my dad says, "Yeah, but by doing that, he kept Hitler out of Spain." Mm. And That's genius. You know, genius way to look at yeah, it. Yeah. In some ways, he was a genius because the things. By 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 kowtowing to Hitler and doing some of the things that he wanted, he also, you know, while Hitler was moving across uh, um, Europe, you know, like this this horrible storm, it ignored Spain. Yeah. So Spain never, re- except for the Spanish Revolution, Spain never got caught up in World War II in and of itself. And so now, you know, twenty only twenty years later, everybody who was in World War II still very very um cognizant of fascism and you know here's that this tiny little remnant of those days and they kind of you know tolerated and ignored him Mm -hmm. so where did he get attention from well he got attention from other fascist dictators in central and south america and the united states and the united states he got he got attention from because they could use spain as a base to fly their missions and fly over uh, Spain. So that's why, you know, he was able to sort of make nice, be nice with, with, with the U S. Um, so there was, you know, that this whole political thing going on, but yet he attracted everybody from all over the world to go to places like Barcelona and Madrid, because it was just a fabulous place to be, yeah. you know, in, in other ways. So, so there, so tourism was huge. You know, and I guess people sort of rationalize, well, we're helping the Spanish people, too. So yeah. I don't know. 
when and, you when your when your uncle gets to the, the to the site, did he talk about what he saw when he actually gets to the site, or did he actually how close did he actually get to the to the crash site? Oh, later he did get to the site. So so going back to the story, so he has these two flunky reporters that he has um, do his bidding, so to speak, <laughs> um, and he sends them down first. And they try to get onto the American base. Of course, they're turned away. And as they're driving away, they're flagged down by an American soldier who asks them to, at first they asked them, do you speak English? And they said, yes, because we speak English. And they spoke perfect English because they lived in, the, in California for a while. And he says, well, I need help translating. Now, of course, they didn't let on that they were reporters at all. They didn't let on that they were journalists. They were just some, like, they thought... There was a lot of local people helping mm -hmm. with uh, uh, to try to help, uh, you know, with cleanup and this and that and logistics and so. So a lot of local people did help. So maybe he thought they were locals because they spoke Spanish like 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 natives. They were, and but they spoke English perfectly. So he's like, "Oh, great! Can you help me with these farmers? I have to make them leave their farm because they don't understand there's radiation here." And they were like, radiation. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, see, what is radiation? Get your notepad, get your notepad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they go over there. They talk to the farmers. They tell them that it's, it's unsafe there. They have to leave because there's radiation. And as they're relieving, they say, oh, and so did they, did they, recover, all, did they recover all the bombs? And the, the, the uh, military guy says, oh, you know about the bombs? And they're like, yeah, we just came back from the base. Oh, yeah. And he just blabbed everything. <laughs> just blah. Yes. And, then, you know, the two bombs exploded. Gomer pile over there. Scattered plutonium all over the place. And one <laughs> bomb is missing. And the other bomb we recovered. And this whole thing was a big mess. And they were like, oh, wow, wow, wow. And they were like, Harry, have we got a story for you? <laughs> and, of course, it just it hit the papers the next day. And this huge, you know, big, uh, um, what, what would you call it? Like a uh, international or... nightmare, you know, uh, I mean, I can't imagine like publicity wake... nightmare came up. Yeah. I mean, I can't believe I can imagine like waking up the next day and say, like, Hey, four nuclear bombs went off and one's missing. Yeah. And, um, just not understanding. I mean, just before being able to watch it on YouTube or anything, you're just reading one... about it. One year after Thunderball. Exactly. One year. Yeah, everyone just saw Thunderball. One's under the water, and you're thinking, oh, great. There's a guy Actually, in an eye patch. Where's the guy with the eye patch? <laughs> yeah, less than a year because Thunderball was still playing in a lot of theaters when this happened. That's it's so crazy <laughs> about the James Bond franchise. Five minutes in the future, five minutes in the past. It, it yeah. just all the time. And I, and I think what's happening with No Time to Die, I think No Time to Die revolves around a virus. So they did it again. Yeah, we they did it again. It it may, it may be a virus, and they were like, "Oh shit, did we take that, or we leave that in, and you know, do another Thunderball <laughs> thing?" So, so after so after the story gets published, now I'm sure a whole lot of people in high places now want to talk to your uncle. What was what was that like? Angie Biddleduke, the the uh, ambassador from the United States to Spain calls the house where my mom and dad are staying because he doesn't have an, my uh, uh, Harry just moved to Madrid at this point. So he didn't really 
have a, a permanent address. The only permanent address they could find was his brother, George Stathos, who lived in Barcelona. And my parents were staying at that apartment at the time. Um, literally at the time, I think, yeah, my mom had just found out she was pregnant with me. And she gets a phone call and it's, it's, it's the ambassador, Biddleduke, screaming at my mother, where is Harry? Where's that son of a bitch? Blah, blah, blah. And she's like screaming these obscenities. They're like, oh my God, I don't know. I don't know what She's like, you know, almost on the verge of tears because this, here's the, the American ambassador, you know, chewing yeah. out my mom, <laughs> looking for her, her uncle. Where is that son of a bitch, Harry Stathos? He just, you know, yeah. made a nightmare for us. Uh, publicity, publicity, public relations disaster. And, uh, you know, they're threatening to kick us. They're threatening to kick us out. They're threatening to kick the United, the, uh, the, the ambassadors out. I could lose my job. Um, they're, you know, threatening to kick all, you know, American citizens out. There's, this is a, you have no idea what a huge disaster this is. And she said he called her like three, four, five times screaming at him until he finally got, got him on the phone. And, and so my, and my father was, was, you know, because at the time still nothing, nothing in the press. I mean, prior to Harry Stathos breaking the story and it mm -hmm. exploding all over the world, the only people who really knew about the polymeric disaster were the people who were involved in it and my parents. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> and they're crazy. Like, we tell our friends that there's a nuclear, <laughs> that there's a hydrogen bomb off the coast of Spain ready to explode. Should we leave? And my mom was like, Duh, don't, let's stay here. Let's not go. My uncle tends to exaggerate. It's, it's probably no, they probably already got all the bombs and he's just making this up and blah, blah, blah. blah. And he's like, I, I don't, my dad's like, I don't know. I, I kind of, think this is our cue to go and she's like no 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 it'll be fine <laughs> and <laughs> and then there was the so then eventually you know they do find the bomb and oh what was so funny my mom was saying well where where are the russians and all of a sudden russian trawlers show up really and these russian yeah these russian trawlers were spy ships mm -hmm. they were disguised to look like uh, merchant ships or fishing vessels but i don't know if you remember in for your eyes only at the beginning there's like this fishing vessel but inside is a all this uh, high tech, um, you know, yeah, British right. military, British Navy. Well, those things are real, uh. and the Russians had them, and the Russians were swarming the area, and they actually had submarines also looking for the bomb. I'm sure. I'm sure everybody was trying to get that thing. Yeah. So my so then my my uncle reports that oh yeah Russian trawlers just showed up, and 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 so he reports about the Russian trawlers, and then he reports about the. Uh, the uh, the submarines that were all looking for it. So of course, yeah, the Russians were all over that place. Mm. There were as many Russian submarines as there were for American. And it was a, literally a hunt to find it. And how long did it take? It took like, what, uh, 30 or 80 days, I think. I, I, think, it was, I think it was 281. It. I'd have to... Maybe it was more. Maybe it was only 80. I thought it was 281. Let's see here. I think it was only like 80, 80. days. Let's see. Here. Yeah, it was like 80 days, I believe. Now I got. I'm. I'm curious now because I, I forgot. Yeah. Eighty-one. It was. So, an, you're right. Eighty-one or eighty-one day ordeal. Yeah, it was an eighty-one day ordeal. So, so it, in um, so the story goes that 
they find the bomb, but they don't want to really, again, they, they're trying to keep this contained. They're trying to keep all the news people. By that time, the new, you know, after 80 days, the news cycles, you know, they, they just go their way and people start forgetting about it. And it's not in the news as much anymore. And ha- Harry strikes up a conversation with a, a, on his way back from, he was traveling back and forth through Germany for, for stories and jobs and whatnot. And on his way back from Germany to Spain, he sits, he sits down next to an American Airlines pilot. And the pilot had just been out the previous night with the colonel who had told him that we found the bombs and we recovered the bomb and told it to, and then told it to this pilot who told it to my uncle Harry, who didn't know was a, again, did not know was a news reporter. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and so he publishes found, bombs found. And so again, they call up Harry like, what are you doing? Are you, <laughs> Where do you get this information from? <laughs> Damn it. Yeah, pile. One of the funny, <laughs> Yeah, one of the things that, that in the I just saw a documentary on this. Um, weird, literally. There's a Spanish documentary on an hour and a half documentary is from 2007, but it literally got posted to YouTube ten days ago. Really? Yeah. Stealing our idea. Is that weird? <laughs> so, and in that video, and in that video is there was a publicity stunt that Biddle Duke did where he went swimming in Palomares to show that the waters were not contaminated, that they were fine. And then, you know, the reporters ask him, Oh, you know, is that, do you feel, if you feel okay, do you feel, how do you feel coming back out of radiated waters? And he's like, Oh, if that's radiation, then I love it. Blah, blah, blah. You know, typical politician yeah. garbage coming out of their mouth. And, uh, but what they didn't show was that my uncle Harry was there and as retribution, they Biddle Duke and a, uh, some State Department guys grabbed him and threw him in the water. <laughs> <laughs> like this is this is what you did to us. And so they they dragged him, you know, fully clothed with a suit and tie, and with his recorder and everything, and just dragged him and threw him into the ocean. <laughs> that was another part of the story that my uncle told. It's like, yeah, and they grabbed me and they threw me down and. As they were so angry at me. <laughs> that's, that's funny. So, so the, yeah. the ordeal's over, the 81 day ordeal's over. Yeah. Bombs got it. We're all good. Everything's yeah. present and accounted for. Was there anything yeah. after the story, or, or, or was there anything kind of retribution, or did it was it good for your uncle's career? Um, what happened? Oh, or did he face know, any kind of just... backlash, or was it kind of smooth sailing out once the ordeal was over with? Oh, no, it was great for his career. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it skyrocketed him to be one of the top, you know, uh, journalists at the time because he, he was part of this huge story that he broke. And that's, you know, eventually he, you know, when he came back to the United States, the New York, the Daily News hired him immediately and blah, blah, blah. You know, and so, yeah, it was, it was, it, oh, one of the, the other funny things is that when this whole thing was going on. My grandfather kept saying, don't you, don't talk about this story on my phone. And they could, and my dad was like, why? My phones are tapped. By whom? The CIA. Why are your phones tapped by the CIA? It had to do with, and we're going to do another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> How my grandfather was sort of responsible for the invent, for the, for the formation of the Israeli Navy. <laughs> well, we're definitely gonna have to get into that. I definitely. Yeah, 
I definitely have to get a, a good Israel, you know, um, yeah. the Mozad. I need that good Mozad episode. Yeah, uh, I, I have to do more research on this, but and I have to really find the document because there is no for, for obvious reasons. There's really no documentation. But what happened was just really quick. He was in the OSS during World War Two. After after World War Two, he got his um, captain's license and he became a, a, a ship owner. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he was like one of the Greek ship owners. He, you know, he knew Anassas. He knew Nearchos. And he was importing Volkswagen Beetles at the time with his ships. The oh, this the new CIA came to him and said, we need you. Can you. Basically. We take a we got we got a hold of this. Um, now, the way he told is that the the the. The, the, it was a Navy frigate, a Canadian Navy frigate that was in the Brooklyn Navy Yard. And they like, you have to sort of take it out of the Brooklyn Navy Yard. We bought it, so it's ours, but you, but we can't officially do anything with it. So can you steal it and take it to Israel? <laughs> <laughs> the only problem is there's going to be a blockade at Gibraltar because the British don't want you to do this. And they're going to try and sink you. And he was like, yeah, sounds like fun. <laughs> <laughs> you got it, partner. And, and and again, I'm not going to get into it, but there's this huge hold. Of, uh, he, we literally, my grandfather had me up all night long telling me this whole adventure of crossing the sea, breaking the British blockade, running guns and 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 uh, naval warships into Israel, into the Haifa That's uh, port. That's great. And so because he did that, and my dad was saying, like, I don't think he ended it with just that one. I think he was my my grandfather. He, and he, he said, well, I wasn't part of the CIA. He called himself. I was a vendor. I don't know what that mm-hmm. means. I guess that's what he, how he classified it. He was like, no, I was a I was what was called a vendor. So he wasn't. So the CIA, you know, when they have dirty work, they don't do it themselves. They hire others to do the dirty work exactly. for them. And my grandfather was one of those people. I feel like the I feel and like the Russians so, and the Soviets have been doing that forever. I think the re- most recent thing we're seeing now is with this hacking. It, I think it's Russian vendors that are doing this this hacking of all oh, these yeah. pipelines and stuff no more doubt. than, you know. Absolutely no doubt. Absolutely no doubt. So and they're in they're in places like Belarus and probably uh you know ukraine and god knows where else oh my god yeah but yeah so but but because of that incident for most of his life the cia had a had a had had his uh phone tap that's crazy that they used him (laughs) and they still didn't trust him that's crazy right like uh, well let's put it this way when here's another crazy story so fast forward to 1980 he gets another phone call from the cia Oh, I remember you did this job for us back in '47, and uh, we need you to, if you can, at least supervise. If you can, if you can take the ship, that would be great. If you can, at least give us an idea of how to do this. We want to run guns to Iran. I'm like, he's like, what? He goes, what do you mean you want to run guns to? He goes, well, we we need to get weapons into Iran. He's like, why are you getting? And this was long before Iran Contra broke. Yeah. So I'm, and I remember this. I remember sitting in the living room with my mom. My mom's talking to my my grandfather in Greece because he lived in Greece. He retired in Greece, and he's like, "You are not going to Iran." She's she's literally on the phone <laughs> yelling at him. You are you are an old man. You have no business going to. And why the hell 
are we bringing i thought they were our enemy why the hell are we being bringing weapons into iran what the hell is going on he's like i don't know but for whatever reason they want me so i'm at least going to chart some you know make some charts and chart some 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 uh roots for them sounds like a liam neeson <laughs> movie <laughs> that's so <laughs> like, crazy like you're two and her and her, her half sister like you can't do this you're not allowed to go to iran <laughs> why are we running guns to them anyway and i knew about this literally long before anything broke and i'm like now that's weird why are we sending yeah and this was during the hostage crisis so we were selling basically weapons for hostages at that time and mm. nobody knew about it except my grandfather and yeah. his daughter me and, <laughs> <laughs> and we kind of forgot about it and then when the iran contra broke we were like Oh, oh, that's no, that's 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 what all about. No. I thought that was weird. <laughs> so that's yeah, a, that's my crazy family. <laughs> that's some fascinating stuff. Yeah, we're definitely going to be doing more of these ep- these episodes for sure. Yeah, um, and it's amazing because even at the time when I was doing the research, I real I I read that you know that polymeris incident. That's not the only bomb that's missing. Mm-hmm. There's like six to eight bombs out there still unaccounted for. Yeah, six to eight nuclear devices. It's like crazy, several right? off the. Yeah, one off the coast of California. There's like two off the coast of North Carolina. There's one buried in a swamp in North Carolina that they can't get at. That's just sitting there. Yeah, for I mean that that Air Force base in North Carolina was like yeah. the main hub for all that stuff. Yeah, and in 2017, <clears throat> the Russians lost one in the Arctic Circle. It's still there. The Amer- right now, as we speak, Russian and American subs are just going nuts trying to look for it, <laughs> trying racing to see who could find it first. So I grew right up. Now. I grew up. <clears throat> I grew up in upstate New York, um, by Montreal, like right by the Canadian border. Still American, but I'm like this close to being Canadian. Um, but I don't tell anybody that. Let's keep that a secret. <laughs> um, speak but, French, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Um, so it was a big Air Force base up there, and they closed in 1991-92, and I was doing a carpet shampoo business when I was going through college, just trying to pay my way through college. And I went through this one spot, and it looked like a normal house on the outside, and then I went in. It was ended up going 13 floors down into the basement, and it used to have two missiles right there. It was like the backyard of where I grew up. So they could actually, there was an airport and there was always a runway there. And I was always like, that's weird because I live in a real poor, I grew up in a real poor area. Nobody had an airplane. So like, why would there be an airport there? But we're like, oh, whatever. And then there was two, they, they would house two nuclear missiles in there, but you wouldn't be able to tell. So the guys who owned it brought me down and he went down. And there was a presidential podium and everything there and like a, a whole radio. Like we would see in 19, like if JFK were to address the nation in like a fallout shelter. It would be there, and there'd be two. There were two uh, armed missiles there at all times. So it was just the craziest well, the, stuff that goes. The missiles weren't still there. The missiles weren't there. No, they 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 had closed so when the base like closed. Silo? Yeah, well, it's underground. You couldn't tell, but you look. The, the place where the underground bunker was, it went thirteen floors down, <clears throat> and then to get into the presidential thing, there was like a big bank vault thing that you had to turn just like you would and oh, the heavy steel door would come in and then the presidential this is podium. like right out of a bond movie yeah Seriously. it was it was crazy it was surreal like and then the presidential podium was right there and then there, i didn't get to see the missile south but it said right two over were the missile launch points so it was crazy. it's crazy the things that 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 are in secrecy that are hidden still in this world 
just did you ever like sneak in there yourself and back in there no no uh, i never did they were selling it and then you had to get through a special i don't even know why they had me as a carpet shampoo guy like i was just trying to sell vacuum cleaners for electrolux at the time like why (laughs) why am i shampooing this carpet but they were they were all they were all about showing it to me so it was so cool like and that's what i mean oh wow come on so you (laughs) yeah it looks like a wood cabin but you know nuclear missile silo you want to see the downstairs i'm thinking it's downstairs it was it was it was so cool so so surreal so these the stories yeah. like this are always so fascinating um that's awesome but well <laughs> I, I can't thank you enough for coming on we're definitely going to be doing more of these alex this was so great uh, i have to do yeah, this and listen this was this is awesome thank you so much for <laughs> inviting me i'm sorry i'm well actually i'm not sorry i missed the first kung fu one because your guy stanley stanley tatum um, yep Tatum did such a phenomenal job he did so, i was like um like i'm a film guy but his depth and breadth of knowledge of films especially in action films was just mind-blowing oh, i'm yeah. like there is no way i could have given you a good show the way he gave you a good show <laughs> yeah stanley's uh, great no way stanley's no way. stanley's a good dude a and he's great job. at this stuff so it was it was definitely so, a good so it, was a, it, it was good that i missed it <laughs> but there, we can do new ones well i definitely am glad that, we, that i got you for this one and we're definitely gonna do more of these yeah. but again i have to i have to do with this with every interview all right every time all right so i was waiting for this one <laughs> <laughs> you got a choice this is the dessert this is the dessert all right so you have to drive. You have to sit in the back with two nuclear warheads. All right. You have to drive or do the same thing that the B-52s were driving. This. You never know. You could explode. But the perk, the caveat, is you get one. You get to sit on one nuclear warhead. A Bond girl gets to sit on the other nuclear warhead. Who's taking the nuclear warhead journey for Michelle you? Michelle Yeoh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Listen, I've. I was a Michelle Yeoh fan long before she ever showed up in a Bond film. Yeah. You know, being a Kung Fu guy, loving Kung Fu my whole life, loving, you know, learning Kung Fu. I've seen, you know, countless, countless, countless uh, Kung Fu films. You know, I have my wife watching Kung Fu movies. She was like, okay, I'll tolerate it. And she's Chinese, so she was like, <laughs> okay, or another Kung Fu <laughs> <laughs> But, But when I saw her, yeah, when I first saw her in Wing Chun, I was like, wow. Yeah. And then I saw her in uh, Super Cop, and I was like, really, wow. And then she shows up in a Bond film. And I'm just... Sold. You know, <laughs> totally. I mean, listen, they're all... Of course, they're, they're, all, they're all there because they're beautiful. Mm-hmm. They're all there because they have, you know, the beauty. That's, you know... But for me, what I... You know, when I think about it, like, what are the Bond girls that I like? And, you know, there was um, from Russia with Love... Um, Tatiana Romanov. Uh, Tatiana Romanov, yeah. Daniela Bianchi yep. and um, Jane Seymour and uh, um, the whole cast from Thunderball. <laughs> the, whole, the whole female cast from Thunderball. Oh, All yeah. of them. Thunderball has uh, the best. I think the, the best female cast, I think Thunderball wins. Yes. Cla- yep. Yes. Claudine Auger. And that- Hands down, hand, when you, when you put them like all together, hands down. That's like it's probably my second or third favorite Thunderball. Is my, my second or third favorite uh, Bond film. You know, and it's like what is the quality of that 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 I 
found attractive in all these women. And it, 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 is, it is a certain elegance. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, when I look at it and I was like, it's something that they, they have this elegance about them, the way they're poised, the way they carry themselves, the way they walk across them. When you see now, Michelle Yeoh was a ballet dancer. She was in the Royal Ballet. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the reasons why she could do martial arts so well was that she, because of her ballet uh, training, and it's interesting, when I was um, in uh, sort of student teaching at the Kung Fu school that I went to, it was called Kwan's Kung Fu. My teacher's name is uh, Sifu Shuyu Kwan. Unfortunately, he passed away uh, a couple of years ago, but just want to give a little memory to him. Um, uh, a, a couple of ballet dancers came into the school and they were like, we want to take lessons. And I'm like, okay. And I didn't really think much of it. And... So I started showing them the form. They got it right the first time. And I was fucking pissed. <laughs> I'm like, it took me three months to get down what you just got down. Yeah. How about, she's like, you don't understand. If we don't get the choreography right the first time, we don't eat. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's an incentive. So we have to get it. Yeah. Now, the difference was power. When a ballet dancer kick, kicks, they lift their, their leg, right? Mm-hmm. When I kick, boom. Yeah. You know, it's 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 a it's a it's a blow meant to penetrate. When they do it, it's like this gracious lift. So they look beautiful, but there's no power. Now the difference is that you can train that power within a few months, mm-hmm. and then they're going to be spectacular. So you know that's why Michelle Yeoh could do what she could do, mm-hmm. and uh, Zhang Ziyi, and um, you know a lot of. Uh, um, who else was a dancer? Oh, um, Van Damme was a dancer. Yep. Um, you know, so all these dancers going, and a lot of the guys in the old Shaw Brother movies, about literally half of them were martial artists. The other half were dancers. Yeah. And so they had this poise, this grace, this way of, of moving, this way of carrying themselves. So it's, it's that kind of elegance. Let me ask you. If you're on the bomb, who's next to you? Oh, Zenya on the top. If I'm going to die anyways... I'm gonna I'm gonna go out. Ooh. That's it. Huh? What can I do? That's it. That's it. We're gonna both okay, gonna go you, down together. Either the bomb gets me or her thighs get me. Either way, I'm happy. You're you're dark. <laughs> you have no idea. <laughs> no, seriously. Like, what's the qualities that you find attractive? Uh, you know, I, I think like films like uh, Femme Fatale, like a, a Fiona Volpe. I find that she's intelligent, very crass, sexy. Even when she's like, talk, talk, talk. Like, all you do is talk. You should be locked in a cage, all that stuff. But still carries herself with with a, with a good or classy um, when you can bring her out. But she's, you know that she's also got a little bit of a dark side to it. Yeah, Those are, you like that edge. Oh, I do. I do. I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, awesome. something like something like that. I like the Fiona Volpe. If I were to do like a um, just plain, I, I like um, if I were to do like a nicer girl. Um, I guess a Vesper, but my my top two would everybody be everybody loves Vesper. Yeah, my top two would be Fiona Volpe, Xenia, something like that. Something a little, some some little dark. Yeah, something a little dark yeah. edge. Yeah, that, those are mine. <laughs> but Alex, this wow. has been so great. This it's has been nice. such a good time. I can't thank you enough. And uh, yeah, I loved it, man. Yep, absolutely. And did you want to plug any of your kung fu studio or anything like that, or any kind of tai chi or anything you want to plug? Mm. 
not really. It's it's kind of, we're kind of in coming out of COVID. I'm still kind of in flux, and I mean I'm I'm working. I'm doing mostly Tai Chi mm. stuff outdoors with uh, senior centers and whatnot. And then we're just trying to work to see what's going to happen with the kung because of course the the COVID obliterated my kung fu mm. class, and so we're tr- trying to see when that that place where I was teaching opens again. I was literally teaching in a in a Buddhist temple, and. Uh, so we're seeing if they open, if we can get the class back together. I had a lot of really good students that I'm kind of left by the wayside and feel bad about. But, you know, in the meantime, I'm still doing the Tai Chi and that's doing that's doing fine. So it's Great. no problem. Well, Alex, this yeah, has been a good. blast. Again, Alex Lamas, thank you for coming on. And we are definitely going to do this again, my friend. Love it. Thank you so much. Looking for a better way to get up out of bed instead of getting on the internet and checking a new hit me get up. First shot, come strut walking. A little bit of humble, a little bit of cautious. Somewhere between like Rocky and Cosby's for the game. Nope, nope, y'all can't copy up. Bad, moonwalking. And this here is our party. My posse's been on Broadway. And we did it all. Thank you, Alex, for taking your time and coming on. It was a lot of fun. And it was uh, such a great topic and such a great interview. And we're going to have to do this again. And what I love about post-World War II and the era in which James Bond lives in, I find it the most interesting in history just because it really was, the world was torn apart by world wars. World War I, World War II had split the world into, into all sorts of fractions. And then it, the world was put back together. And how it was put back together was this, all these different nuanced, um, the CIA, the uh, the KGB, all of these nuances that they happen, how they got scientists and how they got bombers and how they got dictators in place. And I'm going to definitely do an, uh, an episode on Francisco Franco in the future. If you guys don't know who he is, he has a really interesting story. And Francisco Franco was put into office by the working by three countries that really worked together to put him on office. One country, MI6. MI6 and Great Britain were instrumental in getting Francisco Franco in power. The other two, Hitler and Mussolini. So the MI6, Hitler, and Mussolini all helped get Francisco Franco into power. During Francisco Franco's reign, 200,000 Spaniards were killed in his opposition. So I don't know how well, I didn't even really know much about him until I started researching him after this. It's going to be a future episode. But it's just so interesting to see how these things happen, how these stories and how these cover-ups and how all these little things help shape what the world is today. The world is the way it is today because of how everybody maneuvered during this time after World War II. From the 1940s to the 1970s, I think those were the most interesting time in the world because the world was literally being put together again. Thank you guys for coming in. This has been episode 36. This has been Thunderball for your eyes only. It's been all about nuclear warheads. Thanks again, Alex, for coming on. And if you're not following, liking, or subscribing, what are you doing? Come on, give me that. Uh, give, y'all got some of those five-star reviews? <laughs> uh, if you guys could, just uh, give a five-star review. It would really, uh, it'd really help. It would really help me out. So thank you guys so much. And as always, take care. Stay positive out there. Comment down below and leave a like and then and hit that subscribe button. Why are you not hitting that subscribe button?